Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session My Stellar Year, featuring Vicky Laveau Harvey in conversation with Kate McClymont, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Uh, thanks very much for that, Penny. Um, now, I am absolutely thrilled to see so many people here today. This is fabulous. And including Vicky's daughter and her granddaughter here. <laughs> so um, I was actually one of the judges on the Stella Prize. And I remember getting a text message from my, you know, one of my fellow judges saying, how amazing is the erratics? And I can't believe it's non-fiction. And I texted back saying, non-fiction? Oh, my God, I thought this was a work of fiction. I can't believe that anyone... I know, I can't believe that anyone would come from such a dysfunctional family. (laughs) Really. But also, and write about it in such a bleakly humorous way. And, um, you know, Vicky, I think just start off because then unfortunately maybe some people here who haven't read the book but just just paint the picture of how you how you came to be going back to Canada to look after your or to, or to free your father from your monstrous mother oh yeah well I wouldn't say monstrous Kate. I would you would <laughs> okay um it's funny because Someone else said to me the other day, she was a monstrous personality. She was a difficult and dangerous personality. I never saw her as a monster. She was very difficult to navigate, and she scared the socks off me. (laughs) But um, I think I always realized that there was something very unfortunate that was wrong with her, Mm. and that she also was very unhappy and not able totally to deal with what she was in herself. She had a personality disorder, and these are very, very difficult things to live with for the person who has them, as well as difficult for the people who live around the one afflicted with it. Just going back a bit, so your book starts, I think, in 2006. Yes. When you fly to Canada and... Tell us what the situation was with your parents and why you started the book at that point. Yes. Well, my, my, um, actually, my mother broke her hip in 2007. I had made a lightning visit in 2006, but in 2007, my mother um, broke her hip or her hip broke and she fell in the kitchen of this ranch house where she had isolated herself in southern Alberta with my father. And we'd had, basically, my sister and I, almost no contact with them for nearly two decades, aside from my lightning visit the year before to check if they were dead on the floor in a Bates Motel kind of thing. (laughs) And they weren't, um, and I wasn't able to actually see them much. Um, That's in the book. And um, so she broke her hip. She went to a hospital. They had to call for help. And my father was left alone on the property. And not a family member, there were no family members, a person outside the family had seen my father and seen how very thin he was, how ill he looked, and actually found my sister on the web 
and said, are you related to these people? Because they are in dire straits. They need help. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my sister wrote back and said, yes, we are, but we're not in contact with them. And that's how we did end up, both of us, flying there and seeing my father in shocking state. Actually, I thought he was terminally ill. He wasn't. He was just starving. And um, that's how I got there. And so when you got there, I remember you saying that um, you spend your night in a room and it's surrounded by minks, by yes, furs. Not like a mother's ones. got these crazy... Yeah, <laughs> dead, dead mink. Yeah. Yes. yes. So describe... And so, you know... Two of your mother's most interesting obsessions were, one, gambling, and two, collecting stiletto shoes and furs. Yes. Well, she was fashion conscious. And this <laughs> in, for, our, in Outback, in, Alberta. So, well, not exactly. We don't call it the Outback. Sorry. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was not as far removed from towns and cities as Outback would suggest. It was rural Alberta, where my father had moved um, after he retired, they bought a property uh, which was part of a former ranch, a ranching property. It had a nice big ranch house and a glorious outlook over the Rockies. And he told me when I said to him later, look, we're not country people, we're city people. Why on earth did you move out here? And he said to me, because 20 acres was the minimum amount of space I had to put around your mother. <laughs> and so that's why they moved out there. Um, and it was a very beautiful property. Yes. Now, what did you ask me? I'm terribly sorry. Oh, no, it was about the ga also her gambling and her Oh, yes, furs. okay. So she wasn't a country person. I'm not suggesting country people aren't chic, but my mother was a city woman, and she loved ballet stilettos. She had lots of them. They were lined up in the closet of the room where I stayed. She had a number of mink coats and mink hats and... I think I put it in the book that when I went to sleep in that room, it was like I was, you know, the Dr. Javago movie, there's Lara's theme through it, you know, and she's got those hats. Um, it was like that. I went to sleep with that in my mind. And it was quite striking, yes. Yes, and the gambling. Well, the gambling. She luckily did not have access to the internet, even though I thought it would have been good if they had. I changed my mind when I realized what she'd been doing. Um, and I think, I'm probably going to get sued for this, but I kind of blame Reader's Digest because I think my mother must have responded to something, an ad of some kind in some kind of magazine, and then it went from there. She was sending checks every day, 15 or 20 of them every day. She'd get driven to the post office to, um, to mail these checks to scams all over the world. And the amount of money going out was just phenomenal. Yeah. So she decided, she said she had decided to um, win her own money as opposed to my father's and um, that she was going to spend all his doing it. So there was kind of a thing going on there. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> like, for a really brilliant picture of what um, Vicky's mother was like, if you would just like to read... Sure. Um, that there's a there's so many chilling passages in this book, and this one really struck me. Yeah, I'll get the light right here. One of the few coherent messages my mother repeated to me and to my sister as we grew up 
a message that she sometimes delivered with deceptive gentleness and a touch of sadness that we were not more worthy prey was this one, and I quote, I'll get you and you won't even know I'm doing it. And then there's there's another piece in the book about um, about the scissors, about her... Oh, my hair. Yes. Yes. Um, my mother was impulsive, as are people often with this particular type of personality disorder she was afflicted with. And um, as you can see, I have rather unruly hair. And it was very, very long when I was a child, and my mother would comb it and put it in braids and plaits and things. And when I was a teenager, I had a ponytail, and it wasn't fashionable to be curly or fuzzy in any way. And I would work very hard at keeping my hair smooth, and my hair was down to the middle of my back. And one day I was looking at a teenage magazine, I think it was Seventeen magazine, and I was looking at photos, and I just said more to myself than to anyone else, I'm thinking about having short hair. Wouldn't short hair be good? And because this hair was a lot of trouble. And my mother, who was in the room, took her sewing scissors, <clears throat> excuse me, came up behind me and said to me, she put her face very close to me and she took a hold of my ponytail and she said, you want short hair? Let's give you what you want. And she snipped off my ponytail close to my scalp and it was a very shocking thing. I do not actually remember what happened after that for quite some time. It was quite shocking. My sister is still traumatized by that memory. She says she can't walk by someone with a ponytail without thinking about that, which is terrible. I've just blocked it. I don't know what happened afterwards. I mean, she must have had to explain something. <laughs> I'm not sure what. But yes, that was. So, which, um, which brings us to your sister. Now, one of the interesting things in the book is no one has a name. Yes. Your parents don't have a name. No. Your sister doesn't have a name. Why did you do that? I think to some extent I was trying to tell a story that concerns a lot of people. We all have families, and at the risk of shocking people in more fortunate circumstances, I believe that on some level all families are a little bit crazy. And um, mine definitely had, they were beyond quirks. But I thought, because over this six-year period that this book covers, a lot of really, really funny things happened. And I occasionally my sister and I would just laugh like drains because, I mean, the things that happened were so ludicrous. And I thought maybe it's worth writing something about this contained period where, as two very mature women, we were trying to deal with a situation that had deteriorated thanks to the isolation of a woman who really shouldn't have been on her own, and a gentleman who was hopelessly in love with her and just did whatever she said and just basically turned off his hearing aid because that was the way to live with it, and that meant we couldn't contact him by phone, and this explained how we were unable to get in touch with him at all. And I thought, if people know that sometimes, however dark, whatever it is you're trying to deal with, and aging parents and health problems and infirmity of various kinds and mental illness in families. These are things that most of us have to look at at some point in our life. But if we can realize that 
there are things you can hang on to that sometimes it's funny um, in spite of the terrible situation that maybe it's worth writing, you know? I think... Um I think you wrote this about your sister. I felt she has strained for years, jumping up again and again like a terrier, trying to see over the wall of their rejection. We've been disowned and disinherited. Yes. So you react in different ways yes. to the situation. So can you explain that? Like I think you said that um, scratch me and you will get grief. Scratch my sister at your peril, however, she uh, because you'll get a rage, yeah. a geezer. Yeah. My sister um, stayed put in Canada, not close to my parents, about 1,200 miles away. <clears throat> but she did make periodic forays into their territory to try to connect with them. And she wanted to believe we were a family. Um, I just got the hell out of Dodge. And <laughs> I moved to France, where I studied. I lived there for 26 years. My children were born there. Um, and then I moved here. So I take to intercontinental fleeing. That was my way of dealing with it. Um, it's worked rather well. I live in a lovely place. Um, however, my sister went at it differently, but I think the result was that she was unable to get a degree of attachment that I was able to manage. And I'm not saying detachment was the only path to dealing with this, but you need to deal with it somehow. And I was the first child. I felt that in some ways I'd been through a different experience than she had, and we both dealt with it differently. Yes. What did she think of the book? She did read the book. She came down here to see me a couple of years ago, and the book was in manuscript form, and I mentioned to her, I decided to tell her I had written a book about that period, and because that was the most extended period of seeing my sister, for me, for decades, we weren't in very close contact. And I thought if she says to me when she was here, and I said, oh, by the way, I've written a book, if she said, can I read it, then I'd let her read it. I had no plans to change anything, and I did tell her that. Um, and if she said, oh, that's interesting, what's for lunch, then I was off the hook and it didn't matter. <laughs> so um, that was fine. And she did say she wanted to read it. She sat on my couch part of the time, on my daughter's couch the rest of the time, and she laughed in the right places. And she said something to me which was a big comfort because when you write memoir, to my way of thinking, you've got a brief. You must tell the exact truth as you see it, to the best of your ability, however it makes you look. And I've been asked, why didn't you make yourself look better? Well, because I wasn't better than that. That's how I was. You know, I did my best, but it wasn't pretty sometimes. So, um, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, look, some of the funniest um, parts of the book are in the hospital. So, you know, the book basically opens with the fact that um, Vicky's mother has told the staff that, her daughters are dead. <laughs> so, oh, she only oh, had one, and that one was dead. So which, which one was dead? Well, this was what actually I thought was quite funny. At the <laughs> beginning of the book, I tell the story. My mother is in the hospital. She's broken her hip, and she um, has told the nursing staff various... She was a fabulator, and she was remarkably persuasive. You would believe what she told you at your peril, but you would believe... And she had told the nursing staff various things and the doctors. 
And we went to visit her when we'd both arrived in Calgary. We drove to the hospital where she was to see her. And we went up to the nursing station. It was early evening. There was no one else around. And we said, we've come to see Mrs. Harvey. And they said, why? And we said, well, we're her daughters. And the nurse looked at us and said, no, you're not. And if there's one thing we knew, it was the fact that we actually were her daughters. And um, the nurse, she didn't, she was working on papers. She was extremely stressed and busy. And she just said, no, you're not. And we said, we are. And she said, no, she had one daughter. She died a long time ago. And there, you know, she has none. And my sister sort of reared up and she said to the woman, look at me, do I look dead? And, and this really bothered me. I got quite annoyed and I said to her, I was born first, why are you the one who gets to be dead? And I didn't think that was fair. So we're having this terrible discussion and the nurse is still not paying any attention. She thinks she's just going to have to call security. And at this point, the physio came. I learned afterwards this was the physio. This nice young woman came down the hall towards us. And we were waving our arms and arguing about who got to be dead. And it didn't <laughs> sound good. And the physio said to the nurse, what's wrong with these people? And we thought, ha, ha, ha. Let us tell you about what's wrong with these people. And... Um, the, the nurse said to her, oh, they say they're, they called my mother the Duchess. They, they, <laughs> Did she have a mink in the, um, in the no, hospital? No, she didn't have a oh, mink. Right. It wouldn't go in the washing machines. You weren't allowed to bring anything oh, that couldn't right. go okay. in the wash. Anyhow, that's another story. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the nurse said to her, oh, they say they're the Duchess's daughter, but the Duchess doesn't have daughters. She doesn't have any kids. And the physio said, and this just left us gobsmacked, she said, oh, you've got it wrong. No, no, Mrs. Harvey had 18 kids. <laughs> so, she told me herself, and she only had one boy. It was tragic. She was crying when she told me. And we're standing there, and I said to the nurse, okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I said, well, we can't speak for the others, but could we please see my mother? <laughs> So you can work with anything, you know. <laughs> okay, and so what was your mother's reaction when her two, one dead daughter and the other one... Well, I think she'd completely moved on from telling the stories. No, but, did, but what was her reaction to seeing you? Oh, well, at that point, um, well, she, she was in a peculiar situation. And at one point when we went to visit her, I'm not sure if it was that time or the next time when she'd had time to gather her wits... Um, as we went down the hall to see her when she was going to rehab, there were a couple of doctors and a few nurses and people who just lined up along the side of the, near her door. And we're sort of coming down with my father and, you know, miles of linoleum. And, and a nurse stepped out from the line and she said to my sister and me, which one of you is the famous author? Now, I, I was... I, I live under a rock, basically. This is the first time I've been out in the light for a long, long time. And nobody had a clue who I was, but my mother had set me up. And I said, and my sister said, well, it's got to be you. You know, it's not me. She's a biochemist. And uh, so she said, say something. And I said to the nurse, well, look, um, I do write, but nobody knows who I am. And 
um, you know, <clears throat> no. And she sort of threw her arms up and said, oh, hallelujah, that's exactly how your mother said that you would react. You're so <laughs> modest. And I just thought, you know, you can't beat this woman. It's just what she does. And that was hilarious. It really was in a very embarrassing way. And I just said to the nurse, would you like me to sign your uniform? You know, to, and, and she said, no, thank you. It's okay. You know, yeah. But, mm. but what did your mother say to you when she saw you? Well, at one point she said to me, oh, hallelujah, my children are there. And she said, you know, praise be to... I never knew my mother had any beliefs whatsoever. And I learned afterwards that she'd become quite close to the chaplain in the hospital. So I don't think she was a believer any more than she had been before. But when we walked in, I thought we had to be in the wrong room. And um, she asked me if I was cold because it was winter and it was very snowy. There were snow banks outside her window. And she said to me, I hope you're not too cold coming from where you've come from. So she was very, she was so happy. Her darling daughters had arrived to be with her. You know, this was crazy. And I said, no, no, I'm not too cold. And then I was jet lagged. I just said, Kathmandu. And I meant where I bought my underclothes, you know, the ski wear. I said, Kathmandu. And my mother, who was putting forward this very pious personage at this point. That only lasted 24 hours. But she gave me this piercing look, which I remembered from my childhood. And she was just sizing me up because she thought Kathmandu, I'd been on a pilgrimage or something, you know. And I was probably, I had an ace in the hand, you know. I was going to outdo her. And then she decided I probably couldn't do it, so she moved on, you know. Did it anger you that your father basically betrayed you and your sister and gave basically gave away love for you for your mother yeah look I think he had a hard choice he did love this woman and she was remarkably charismatic and she'd been a very beautiful woman when she was young I think he was enthralled to her his entire well until they were separated at this point when I saw my father and it had been such a long time since I'd seen him he was in such a piteous state. I thought, whatever went before, you are my father. Yeah. And he looked like he was dying. I really didn't think he'd be with us for long. As it turns out, he lived for 10 years um, because he was starving. And when he got, and, and he was dithering and not clear because he wasn't eating. And all of his mind came back. It was fine. But I just looked at him and I thought, even if I were not related to you, I would try to help you. And I wasn't angry because I think I had managed to distance myself a bit. My sister was still angry with him for quite some time. I think after a while that settled for her, but she remained more angry. Well, I wasn't angry at all. I just thought, you poor thing. We have to do something. Yeah. You know. One of the other... Um, <clears throat> The lovely aspects of the book is um, is about Alberta. And um, you've previously said that the southern Alberta landscape raised you in a way your parents never did, that its beauty and its very harshness teach those who live there about resilience and endurance, transcendence and courage. In winter, the cold will kill you. Nothing personal. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So tell us a bit, and, and tell us how the, the book got its name as well. Well... Um, 
there are some things, it's a geological term, and I love this thing, when a word means one thing in a specialized field and means something else in general talk. Um, there are things called the erratics, which are very, very large boulders, which were deposited by glaciers which melted many hundreds of thousands of years ago. And this particular one moved down from Alaska and moved down on the eastern side of the Rockies, moved down into the northern states of the US through Canada. And as it melted and moved, and we're talking really slowly here, it would occasionally deposit a great big huge boulder. It's not Uluru, but it's really big. And it stands out in a landscape of rolling hills where there really are no rocky outcrops. It's not in the Rockies, which are huge, of course. It's in those rolling foothills towards the east. And um, they stand out. And this is a local feature near the village, which is called Okotoks, next to which my parents' property was. It's called the Okotoks Erratic. And one day when I was driving down the road near Okotoks, and in that first visit, which was so very bizarre, and I'm driving along and I see to the side of the road a big sign with an arrow pointing at the rock, which you don't need to point at it. People are going, oh my God, what is that? Um, and it said, visit the Okotoks erratic. And I thought, I am. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. You know. So I thought, that's, that's lovely. That's the name of the book. Now, it is, it is bizarre that here's your mother saying my daughter's a famous novelist. And, of course, now you are. Well, not a novelist. Though. No, sorry, sorry. Yes, a memoirist. But um, so this was your first book. And to win the Stella Prize mm. as your first book in mm. your 70s, mm. oh, that's pretty amazing. How has it changed your life? Oh, look, it, it is a life changer because the Stella is a – particularly wonderful prize. It's for women's writing, and it's a prize awarded by the Stella Foundation, which about 13 years ago, I believe, began with a number of journalists looking at the literary pages of the weekend papers, the big ones, and saying, you know, 80% of the book reviews are about men's books and 20% about women. Isn't that strange? We should do the statistics. So they did. And they also did other, I think there were economists who got together, a number of journalists, and said, let's look at this. How many women are reviewers as compared to men? How many women's books do men review? And vice versa, and found some amazing statistics. And now the, the ship has righted itself a little bit in lots of ways. But um, they found there was quite a bias. This was 18 or 19 years ago, I think. And then seven years ago, they were able to create a prize, which was for women's writing for the previous year, regardless of genre. So it could be fiction, it could be memoir, it could be reportage, it could be anything. And it's a wonderful prize. And so anything you can do afterwards, once you're part of the, the Stella experience, is um, I've done a number of things to try to help with fundraising and things like this because um, it's patrons who support the Stella mm. and it's a wonderful thing. And tell us about your personal life. Like, What did you do in, um, in France for all those years and how did you end mm. up in Australia? I, um, in France, I did my doctorate 
I'd gone there to study, and then when I'd finished that after a few years... And what did you do that in? In French literature, 18th century. And um, then I was going to stay on in France, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll try to be a lecturer. But I then had to do a second doctorate, which most are called a state doctorate, which usually people finished when they were about 50. And I'd been to a few... Um, you had to have a thesis defense in an amphitheater with a panel and people would come, an audience, you know, like a blood sport. And um, A bit like here today. <laughs> <laughs> Not this kind of atmosphere at all. And um, I thought, oh gosh, if I want to teach in a university, I have to get busy on this second doctor. Frankly, I didn't want to, so I went to work in business. I was a translator and an editor for a number of years. And then... We moved here to Australia, and I was just in the process of trying to look into setting up my own little translation agency, employing only me, and um, I was amazed because I had tried to do this in France, and where I'd been told that I had to pay a year's taxes on my presumed earnings for the coming year, and that's really hard to do when you're setting up. And I couldn't say I planned to operate at a loss. I mean, it was, you know, there were rules. And so I hadn't actually done it in France, and then we moved. And when I called the Bureau of Business here, or whatever the relevant authority was, they said, yeah, sure, why are you calling us? Just do it. And I said, well, really? <laughs> and they said, yeah, go for it. Good luck. And I thought, yay. And then on a whim, I had um, sent my CV because I was qualified to be an academic. I'd never done it. And on a whim, I sent my CV to the universities in Sydney, not expecting a reply because I didn't have experience. I was qualified, but I hadn't done it. And I think I sent them out on a Friday. And on Tuesday, I got a call from one of the universities, and they said, um, asked me if that was me, and I said yes, and they said... We. We, c'est moi. And they said, could you start Tuesday? And I said, I beg your pardon, you haven't seen my diplomas, I could be anybody. And they said, no, 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 just come in on Tuesday, can you do beginner's French? And I said, I presume I can. <laughs> so I started there, and I worked there for 18 years, and I loved the teaching. Wow. I was a bad researcher because I loved the interaction with the students. I loved kind of facilitating their access to stuff. Yeah. And uh, that was wonderful. And since I'm an 18th century specialist, as far as research went, the ground was well trod. Um, there was very little original research. I'm a Voltaire specialist. Um, I once found a letter when I was doing my doctorate in France. I was in the National Library. and. I was reading Voltaire's letters from a period where he'd written the thing I was looking at. And I found that in the latest edition of his letters, they'd made a mistake in the date. And they dated it April 23rd. And I knew it was March 23rd because I'd done research and I knew he wasn't there on April 23rd. And I was sitting there in the National Library, which was a very old, venerable building at that point, not the building where it is now. You needed a miner's helmet, you know, it was very dim in there and people would fall off the chair and die periodically. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, yes, I can write a scholarly paper and get it reviewed because of a date change. And I thought, this doesn't matter. <laughs> in the grander scheme of things, this really does not matter. 
Well, thank you all so much for coming. And to the mother pelican. <laughs> that was... Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.